You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode uh, with me today is our chief investment officer, my father, Bill Smead. Dad, thanks for doing this with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I always recommend the Bible. People ask me the list of investment books to read. That's my first one that's on my list of three, Intelligent Investor and uh, Short History of Financial Euphoria by John Kenneth Galbraith are the other two. Yeah, he's also beaming off of hitting an excellent sand trap uh, shot uh, for par on our fun having uh, playing golf yesterday. So, uh, so if he gets a little excited, you guys will know why. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We are going to discuss the pragmatism of the most published and most translated book of all time, the Bible. Father Robert Sirico is joining us to talk about his book, The Economics of the Parables. To give you a little background about Father Sirico, he is the president emeritus of the Acton Institute, which he co-founded in 1990. His writings on religion, political, economic, and social matters have been published by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and others. Robert received his Master of Divinity degree from the Catholic University of America. Father Sirico was awarded an honorary doctorate in Christian ethics from the Franciscan University of Steubenville and an honorary doctorate in social sciences from Universidad Francisco Marroquin. He is a member of the Montpelierin Society, the American Academy of Religion, the Philadelphia Society, and also on the Board of Advisors of the Civic Institute in Prague. He has also served on the Michigan Civil Rights Commission from 94 to 98. His pastoral ministry has included chaplaincy to AIDS patients at the National Institute of Health. He is the pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, Father Sirico, I, both Bill and I read this book. We, we loved this book. It's a great book. We're really excited to talk with you today. What caused you to write on the parables in particular? Well, of course, uh, in terms of scripture, that's one of the most familiar and really, in a way, both the most difficult and the easiest material in the Bible to preach on. Easiest in that it's stories, difficult in that they are stories with profound meaning. You can speak to people on many different levels. So having, uh, you know, preached on the parables for many years, mm -hmm. uh, at the same time that I'm dealing with questions of economics and ethics and things like that, uh, I began to see that the parables contain more than what a lot of people comment on with regard to the parables. Of course, the parables are about the kingdom of God. They very often start out with the phrase, very familiar phrase, uh, the kingdom of God may be likened unto, and then it goes on. But you find that in many of the parables, there's this assumption of the economic reality, which of course is an assumption of the, the human reality, the scarcity in which we live, the need for ordering priorities and things like that. And so I just teased out those dimensions of the parables, which I hadn't seen many people comment on, uh, mm -hmm. at least not very extensively. You wrote that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said, quote, while civilizations have come and gone, these stories continue to teach us anew with their freshness and humanity, unquote. We won't assume, explain what he means by this. 
Well, it's it's really remarkable. I mean, you think about this. With all due respect to your work, this podcast isn't going to be remembered in five years from now or 10 Amen. years from now. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll say something <laughs> profound and it'll be preserved, you know. Yeah. But for the most part, all of the homilies we preach, and the articles we write, and all the rest of it is forgotten. What we're talking about here in the parables have survived 2,000 years. Uh, what is it about them? And, and I think there's several things. First of all, it's the humanity about them, that when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching from the context that people immediately understood. But he does it in a way that doesn't bind him to its time. It's something that happens in his time, but something that transcends his time. So if I made reference today to uh, Wi-Fi connection, in 50 years from now, it might not mean a thing. Uh, it's like telling you, uh, Cole, I presume, do you know who Laurel and Hardy are? Exactly. <laughs> you know, these are some of the greatest comedians uh, of my growing up years. Uh, but we lose it. What is it about the parables? I think another thing about the parables is uh, while they do teach messages, they leave open-ended questions. They leave ambiguity. So you find yourself saying, well, what does that exactly mean? Uh, what's the, the significance of all of this? And uh, this gives them a, a durability. So I think that's what Pope Benedict meant. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man one of my favorites. Are the parables one of the most practical places for humans to see where worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom collide? I think they are. You know, other than looking at the life of Jesus itself as a whole, mm -hmm. these teachings are very practical. He's dealing with uh, among the most common things, you know, relations in families, contracts, hiring and firing people, uh, planning the building of things, the wisdom of um, building your house on solid foundations, all of these kinds of things that people deal with throughout the, the week. Yeah, you talk about two levels, the real life message and the theological analog. Doesn't this force the readers to think about this duality? Yes, uh, it does. You know, in, in many ways, what we have here in this teaching of Jesus is really an amplification of what the church has called through the centuries, the belief in the incarnation, that that God becomes flesh. He dwells among us, as it says in the prologue to John's gospel, so that this tells us how important the world is uh, to God himself. Uh, he created the world. He reveals himself at one level through the world, and he wants to bring the world back into relationship with him. So the parables are a wonderful way to amplify this kind of core message of the, the scriptures as a whole. You say we must face the reality of scarcity. This could become the theme of the post-pandemic world. Explain scarcity as you see it in humanity and economics. Well, uh, get up in the morning. The fact that you have a clock tells you that you live in the midst of scarcity, right? I mean, yeah. if, if, if our lives were eternal, we would be like God. We wouldn't worry about clocks. Uh, in the material world, we live in the reality that everything has a price. By that, I mean uh, that things are limited in their supply, uh, and we have to allocate resources in order to ration them, to make them rational, or what we call rationing. Uh, that's what a market economy does. That's that's what a price system does. It invites us to say, how important is this product to my life? Am I willing to pay this much money for it? Well, maybe not. 
but this much I might be able to, to pay for it. And so all of those things are indications of scarcity. Also, when we get up in the morning, uh, you know, just the awareness of uh, having to acclimate to the day, you know, to get the, the juices going is another indication that, you know, our, our time on earth is limited. You know what I think is so interesting, and people don't even think about it, in the book of Genesis, the image that's given is that God puts man and woman in a garden, not in a jungle. Mm. What is a garden? A garden needs tending. It needs care. It needs pruning. It's a productive thing. And that's why God calls man and woman to work. That's the first words that are spoken in the in the Bible to the human race are words of calling or vocation. Multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, have responsibility, have stewardship over it. And that's an outliving of the image we see in the first chapter of Genesis of God as the worker. The, the prime workman, the impresario, as it were, that brings things together and gives order to what was otherwise chaos. And that's what's going on with the garden. From the chaos of the jungle, man and woman are given the responsibility to order it. So we're going to go, even though I could, we could probably spend, I don't know, three or four hours with you, but you don't have that time, nor do our listeners. Um, we, we, we did is we picked out the first four. Things are per- scarce. Yeah, yeah, the time is scarce. And so is internet connection, as we learned today. Um, so, so, uh, so we're going to, we're going to go through the first four parables and, you know, since we don't know if our audience is listening to this, you know, uh, on their workout, in their car, what would it be not? Um, we're actually going to read the parable, um, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. So let's go to the, the first, the, the parable, the hidden treasure, which is Matthew thirteen forty four. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden a field. The which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all he hath, and buyeth that field. You point out, as you're writing about uh, this parable in the chapter, you point out the precedent for storing treasure in the ground, which would be one of the reasons why the treasure could be there. What else do you say to your readers um, are the reasons that there could be this treasure in the field? Well, you know, could have been lost uh, most often because of the instability of circumstances. People would bury things to keep them secure so that if there were vandals coming through, you'd, you'd have it there. I mean, we hear stories, even modern stories, of people hiding money against thieves. That's mm-hmm. why we have safes. Well, the real lesson of this, though, is the search and the discovery that what entrepreneurship really is, and we see this also in a parallel parable, the uh, Pearl of Great Price. It's a little different, but it's a very similar story Mm -hmm. that this man is attentive to what he comes upon. Now, people may have walked over that, you know, and not noticed it, but he found it and he buries it again and then goes back and makes an offer for the field. Of course, the owner of the field had the responsibility to uh, know what was in his field. Uh, And he buys it. He sells everything in order to buy it. I like the pearl of great price, as I say, the complimentary parable, because it's it's not manufactured, but it's discovered as well. Pearls in the ancient world were not manufactured. They were discovered, but he had the insight to see the value of the pearl. And he so believed in his insight that he was willing to relinquish everything else that he had in order to attain it. So come back to your, as you mentioned in this first parable, you, I'll, I'll quote you here. The treasure has uh, to be sought through discovery and effort. This may, uh, you know, for us, I mean, this is kind of like our life first. We're a stock picking organization. We're seeking after, you know, something of value to your point. The things and, that well, are buried too, that other people don't see. That's well, your correct. job. 
Correct. Exactly. So, so I, and I, I love this because I mean, just practically speaking, and I think this is back to the practicality of the parables, you know, we were talking about this before, uh, and I, I think this holds true, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but you know, we could go to investors and say like, for example, you know, we had a piece here recently that said, Hey, Volkswagen has this store of assets and brands like Lamborghini and, and other brands like Porsche AG that just went public. And there's all these incredible treasure trove of assets. And we explain that to people. Well, now to your point, nobody cares. Like it's an open marketplace. They can decide whether that has value or not. We think it does. But yet, like the person selling the land in this first parable, they didn't. They didn't ascribe that value to it. Is that what you're is that the kind of ideal that you're speaking to? That's precisely what I'm getting to. If if everybody knew everything the same, you'd have no market transactions. It's the fact that some people discover things earlier than others or are creative enough to put them in in connection with something else, as evidently you're doing with these stocks, and to say, look, here's the value of this thing uh, that people are overlooking. And you can get into this investment early precisely because people are overlooking it. And that's what gets the, the engine uh, of the economy going. And by the way, increases the intelligence of society as a whole. Because once, once people are beginning to make money, remember that money is telling us that there is something of value here. Mm. Once that begins to happen, people begin to pay attention to it. Yeah. Next one is the pearl of great price in Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You write that the word merchant may not be the best English word for the Greek word emporo. What would be better? Negotiator, somebody who is uh, bringing, bringing some kind of peaceful conclusion to a thing. So he's negotiating with the man. Obviously, the one who had the pearl saw a value in the pearl, mm-hmm. but the one who's buying the pearl was evidently better acquainted with it in order to risk everything that he had. You know, the other instructive thing about this, because the the stereotype of Jesus is he's some kind of socialist hippie, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and yet here he's teaching, holding up a luxury item as the emblem of the kingdom of God. That should tell us something. As I mentioned previously, just in passing, remember that pearls in the ancient world were not manufactured as they are today. They had to be discovered. And this is what gave them such great value. And the fact is that this man doesn't discover the pearl in nature. He discovers it in a marketplace. That Mm. is, somebody already has the pearl. Sure. And he's willing to relinquish everything he has. This is the most moving for me for some reason because, you know, my own personal life, I found the pearl of great price. I gave my life away for my relationship with Christ and my vocation as a priest. Mm. And I think unless people have something they're willing to die for, they don't have anything they're willing to live for. Yeah, we went to church with uh, Cole's brother Sunday, and it was on generosity. And the preacher mentioned that uh, money and uh, generosity were mentioned like two thousand times in the in the New Testament, three times as much as the second one. So some have the impression that charity and commerce, or the practice of faith and the practice of economic exchange, are always antithetical. Explain this and explain the error. I think the first and most um, dangerous assumption in even among moral people is that somehow charity is the normal way that people rise out of poverty. And that's not true. The normal way that people rise out of poverty is through work. Uh, And charity can only be made possible when somebody has done some work to begin with, accumulated some property, and then has the impulse to share that. But the sharing of wealth 
in the form of charity is precisely to get people over the hump in emergency circumstances. Sure. The great rabbi Maimonides had this, I think he called it the ladder of virtue or something like that. And he, he says that the highest, uh, at the highest level is not just to give something to somebody or even to give it to them anonymously, but to put them in a position where they no longer are dependent upon your charity. That's the real act of charity. Well, and to follow on that, I mean, I, I think one of the greater quotes I've heard on that, and this is, again, just, you know, kind of, I put it under the heading of worldly wisdom, uh, Carlos Slim Hilu, uh, obviously the, the famous uh, Mexican billionaire, he said that Costco does more for society than the Rockefeller Foundation does. And, and I, I love that because he's pointing out to your point earlier that, you know, God gave Adam work. He said, you know, uh, order the animals and name them, right, is what he gave him. Um, and that was because it was good. <laughs> yes, exactly. Work is good. It's the fulfillment of our nature because we're made in the image of God, who himself, as I said earlier, is the empresario. Yeah. By the way, don't you love the fact that a Catholic priest chose the King James Bible to quote all these parables? Oh, well, we're going to have some fun with that in a little bit here. Okay, good. Okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. We're getting to that. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think Jim Senegal was a practicing Catholic yeah. also. I'm quoting, it is in this sense that he brings value into being where it did not previously exist, unquote. This rings of a divine creation view, but many people in the world today look at their economic lot as a zero or negative sum game. This parable doesn't explain anyone lost when this value was created, correct? Right. You know, uh, again, the value comes from people who are attentive enough to see it, to discover it, or to place things in relation to each other so that it, it becomes valuable for somebody else. That's why mm. a trade takes place when you offer. Uh, really, entrepreneurship, business in the right understanding of the word, is a service to other people because you're offering things that people are saying, this is valuable enough for me that I'm willing to part with some of my wealth to obtain it. You, you say that the priorities of the merchant were in line. To invert this, wouldn't this argue that we often get our priorities out of order and miss what is in front of us? You know, the sad thing in life, and this I say now as a pastor, uh, is that people very often settle. Was it C.S. Lewis? Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said something to the effect that uh, the devil wants to get us on the cheap. <laughs> our, yeah. our, our immortal souls are worth so much, but we settle for baubles. And uh, I think because it's the things that we see most easily around us, uh, the comforts of life, all of these things, which are not unimportant to human life, but these are not the most important things, that the reality is that very, very wealthy people can often be very, very sad people. And poor people think that, oh, if I just had more money, I'd be happier. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt to have more money, but it's not the source of happiness. It's not the source of real joy. That comes from something that's immaterial. It comes from a sense of honor a sense of love, a sense of meaning in one's life. And those are things that can't be purchased on a market. So let's jump into the parable of the sower, which is Matthew 13, three through nine. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth and, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now, I just want to make a personal note, Father Sirico, that anytime I can think about things that produce 100-fold, 60-fold, or 30-fold returns. We like I, got I, your I, attention. It got my attention. So, but, but, but so, so, um, and I, I love this because I, I think, um, I mean, it's like here we have a Powerball ticket going out today for $1.8 billion. Okay, so you're, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Your, your, your writing says that good ground is not cosmic randomness, right? It's purposeful and planned. Explain this to our readers. You know, this, this is scattered. This is called broadcast planting. Uh, and it, it's the preparation of the ground that that has a great deal to do with its um, fruitfulness. So your work in investigating stocks and and understanding the and it's not just stocks you're investigating. You're really investigating people. You're mm-hmm. investigating lives. You're investigating judgments and businesses, uh, and that's the fertile soil that says this is worth a good investment because it will yield something. Uh, in return. And this sower is precisely an example of that. You know, um, on the spiritual level, I I think that we always think of this as these are different people who receive the gospel in different ways. And that's true enough. That's what Jesus says. But it's also our own hearts. There are parts of our hearts that are very hard, that we're resistant to some demands of the gospel in ways that are much more uh, problematic to us, much more difficult for us to live than other parts of the gospel. Some people, generosity uh, might be very easy. For other people, chastity might be very hard. Mm-hmm. And it goes through different phases. And so it's it's the cultivation of the soil, if you will, of those parts of our hearts. Uh, and in a market economy, in the way that I just said, that uh, is going to determine the fruitfulness. So I'll quote a line from this chapter um, here. And as I read this, I just want you to know, like in full disclosure, Bill and I buy a national parks pass every year. Um, and I just want that to be known because I think it's way too cheap to your point of, from a market perspective. But uh, so you quote, but when limitations on human cultivation of the land are undertaken uh, out of the mistaken belief that untilled lands is somehow morally preferable to land that has been worked or cultivated, problems arise. The jungle is not always preferred to the garden. And you obviously touched at this earlier when you talked about the Garden of Eden. I, I, I you know, another way of thinking about this is I think I, our pastor explained it as, you know, um, a well-trained dog is godly. A dog that does whatever it wants is chaos. Explain what this speaks to in our culture and our economic decisions, because I think this is something that can be really misaligned today. Well, I mean, there's a kind of cultural prejudice, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, that somehow the most unnatural thing on the planet is the human mind Mm. and business, that manipulation is always seen as a bad word. What, What does manipulate mean? It means to work with one's hands. It's to fashion something. So it can be good, uh, you know, to leave things as they are. And certainly we want to have things in nature. I mean, it's so astounding. You describe going into the national parks. Uh, It's really awe-inspiring to see nature, to see an incredible sunset. I was in the south of Italy, which is where my family came from. And I'll tell you, it's the first time I've ever seen that sunset where, have you heard where the the green light flashes? Yeah, over the Uh, horizon. Yeah, it was marvelous from Capri, the island uh, just off Naples, off Sorrento. Uh, You can't buy that. Uh, So uh, there is a beauty in creation. But to fail to see that something like an iPad has 
a beauty to it as well, especially when it can help autistic children to communicate in a way they weren't able to before. Mm -hmm. Things like that are also beautiful. And I think the the too severe uh, kind of um, radical environmentalist view that prefers the jungle to the garden is uh, mistaken. Well, yeah, and you, you have a discussion in this chapter about private property because you, you know, on this idea of cultivating. I'm going to quote you again. You write, quote, a lack of ownership often results in chaos. Uh, Perrin, the jungle replaces the garden, end Perrin. Uh, when people are no longer able to place value on the land, end quote. I'm, uh, Bill and I, uh, we used to live in Seattle and we used to work in the downtown area of Seattle, um, which has been decimated based on, I believe what you are saying here, to be frank. Um, uh, when homeless people are allowed to encamp on private, local government property and federal lands, it doesn't this just create and breed the chaos that you're speaking to in this parable? Well, it does. I mean, just think of it on a very practical level. Whose property do you take care of better? your own or somebody else's, mm. uh, is what they call in economics, the tragedy of the commons. Or he, here's a good way to very simply explain it. Would you prefer to use a public restroom at a public rest stop or somebody's restroom in a home or in a private restaurant? Uh, how do you drive your car versus a rental car? Mm. Right. And, and this is because you have stewardship, you have responsibility, you have value invested in the property. Uh, rather than just to get the immediate utility out of the property. And I think property is one of the most important things because it's the way in which we extend our lives uh, into the world. It's the way in which we represent our creativity. And I think if for that reason, we need to think of, of property as sacred. Uh, I don't mean sacred in the sense that it's absolute because there are times when we have to surrender property as we do in charity, as we do in families. But to not have a general rule of law that orders things and by ordering things uh, entrusts to people the responsibility to maintain that order, then you have Seattle. You know, I lived in Seattle in the in the late 60s, and uh, it was just coming up then. It was a pristine, beautiful city in the 70s. And now I can't believe the pictures I see of Seattle. San Francisco, mm -hmm. too, or Portland, Oregon. I mean, it's, it's astounding. Uh, you point out that market exchanges capture subjective value, not objective value that you refer to as virtues. The, the two things that kind of came to my mind were housing and children. Can you explain this through those subjects? I mean, and after all, we know that children are more likely to thrive when they're in a stable house with both of their parents. So they're, I like the paradox you pose where it's like, it's just not about the marketplace because there are virtues that are tough to capture in price. Yeah. I mean, how do you capture um, reverence that a person has for a little trinket that they're willing to give anything away for because that trinket was owned by one's mother. Mm. You know, there's something associated with that. By the way, it's an evidence that human beings are more than material entities, right? That we are able to value things beyond the material. And uh, market values are important, but they're subjective. This is what the consumer in this case at this time values the use of that product. Uh, not another consumer, not another time, not another place. But it's very subjective. Whereas what is an objective value, at least in a, in a sane mind, is a child. You can't compare the value of a child. Yeah, the, the uh, Dow Jones just put out a story yesterday about uh, people cohabitating versus people that got married. And the net worth developed in the first four years 
was 17,000 versus 68,000, the people that got married. And the, the writer of this article was looking around for all these various explanations. And I'm just thinking, well, what about God blessing what you're doing? Yeah, the objective value. Yeah, yeah. And, and God blessing it through the nature of who this couple is. I mean, they're, they're willing to invest themselves because they know they've made a solemn commitment to one another. Yeah. The Pope and Elon Musk were quoted within a week of each other recently. Musk said, if intelligent people don't uh, make, make babies, our civilization will die. And a week later, the Pope said, if you're replacing a child with a dog, you're being selfish. Yes. Uh, Which, yeah. And, and so superficial. You know, because that, that dog, first of all, is not going to live as long as a child. And secondly... <laughs> it's a bad investment, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is... All, I, and I have dogs. I have cordoned them off to another part of the house because they want to get into the interview. Uh, <laughs> and I love them dearly, but I, I always uh, remind them, I say, you know, you don't have immortal souls. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're here. The, the humane treatment of animals is not predicated on the right of the animal. Mm. Is predicated on the humanity of the person who's treating the animal humanely. Sure. Uh, and, and I think that we, we lose that and, and we substitute things like uh, a pet for a child. You know, it's uh, very sad. Yeah, you have another quote in this chapter before we go to the next parable. Um, you say, quote, not all institutional settings equally favor economic growth, end quote. You, you talk about regulations and taxes it, right after that, but I, I think that's kind of, I looked at that as like, you know, most people will get that. I wanted to kind of go one step further with some of the discussion we had um, because, you know, what common revelation we all get from God and common grace we all get from God, does that mean the blessings equal? as we can see from some of these parables, you know, if a nation doesn't value children, as we're talking about, and we watch population declines in places like, you know, parts of Europe and China and much like it's taken place in Japan, can, you know, or, or even as we look forward for the United States, can those nations thrive economically? After all, aren't we told that, you know, children are a blessing? Yeah. Isn't it odd that, uh, you know, if you look at a, um, oh, I don't know, let's say a, a sheep herder, uh, somebody who runs, uh, has tons of sheep, he's richer if he has a flock of a thousand sheep and poorer if he doesn't. But a human being who has uh, eight children, as many do in my parish, <laughs> is seen as poor. <laughs> they have a greater social, a natural social security system built right into that family. Amen. <laughs> than, uh, you know, and I think that the mistake here is that materialists, the zero sum mentality that had the Malthusian trap presumes that uh, human beings are essentially mouths that consume mm. and fails to see them as minds that create and produce. Born polluters. Uh, yeah, born polluters. Uh, and the reality is, you know, as uh, another Pope, uh, John Paul II said, man is man's greatest resource. Uh, that it's the human mind that creates these things that are of such great value to us that you trade uh, on markets. It's the human mind that contributes to the progress and civilization and uh, uh, nutrition and, and all of the rest. So that human beings are uh, of infinite value aside from their spiritual and transcendent qualities. So now we're going to go into the parable of the laborers of the vineyard in Matthew 21 through 16. I, I will yeah. read. He, he's going to get ready for this one. This is this be a good read. Okay, now you, get, you put your best Shakespearean voice on. <laughs> for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder 
which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. When he'd agreed with his laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also in the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. And he went out at the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here all day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also in the vineyard, and whatever is right that ye shall receive. So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last and the first. And when they came, that they were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they'd have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and though has made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them, said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Did not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I with my own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last share be first, and the first last. It sounds like the laborers from earlier in the King James Version are saying that this stinks. Stinketh. 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 Yeah, stinketh. <laughs> like Lazarus's body. It stinketh. How, how, how do you rectify fairness versus the mutual agreement with this parable? Yes, uh, this is the one that this is one of the parables that people get really upset about because it's, it's, what they say is it seems unjust. But of course, it isn't unjust. What is mm. justice? Justice is a treat, treatment in accord with what one deserves. And the agreement at the beginning uh, is, and by the way, the price, uh, the wage becomes vague as the day goes on. Sure. He says to the first, agree with me for this penny or this this agreed upon wage, which was the typical day's wage. And everybody at the beginning of this parable is happy, including those who are hired first, because they said, well, I'm not going to sit idle today. We'll have some money to go home with tonight. That was fine. Nothing in objective reality changes from the beginning of this parable to the end, except the subjective perspective of the people who work the whole day. They got what they agreed to. It's very instructive to see how the, what was called the Lord of the, the vineyard, says to them, is it not lawful to me for me to do what I will with mine own? Uh, or uh, are, are you evil? Am I evil because uh, I am good? Uh, are you being envious? Is thine eye evil because I'm generous? Uh, and the question here isn't a question of justice. It's a question of generosity. And these men are envious because of the generosity of this laborer. Now, of course, it might have been that the um, uh, the Lord of the, the vineyard realized, I have to get all this harvest in because we'll lose yeah. this harvest. And so we're going to. Yeah. So in effect, he pays these laborers more in effect. Uh, than the earlier ones because they were in less supply and he needs to get this whole thing in and everybody should have gone home content at the end of the day but it was envy that destroyed it and this is really what is at the heart of um, socialism if if the the vice of greed is the bane of capitalism the vice of socialism is envy mm -hmm. wonderful this gets 
at your argument of scarcity. If he hadn't hired the last at the same wage, part of his harvest would have been lost. Maybe he could see some ominous clouds in the sky and, and thought some of the crops were going to get ruined if he didn't hire the extra people. There was immense value in the last laborers for the owner, correct? Yes. He gets the whole thing in uh, and doesn't lose it. We don't, Of course, we don't know the proportion of the harvest that he got in, but they were of value to him because they were scarce. It's funny, we've kind of taken a deep dive into our society and what might happen to wages in the next five years, say for, you're seeing waitress and line cooks and others get big pay jumps. People that do very normal, common service type jobs are, are getting big pay bumps while billionaires are watching their stock portfolios get annihilated this year. With what is going on in wages today, this should be very practical. Lowest income quartile is seeing the largest wage increases. As you write, quote, the person in the best position to determine what the subsistence level is, is the worker himself, unquote. So there's no regulation or guideline needed for today's circumstances for, for people to better their lot in, in the work. Isn't that really what's going on? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's based on the knowledge, right? The, the regulation, if you want to call it that, has to come from the person who's most uh, intimately acquainted with the circumstance that he or she is living within. Yeah. And uh, when you substitute, especially when you substitute bureaucrats who have no, no interest other than a political interest in this question, uh, what, what, what votes is this going to buy us? Then, then you have, again, chaos. Yeah, we, we talk a lot in our work about the demographics and how much later in life this particular group, the millennials, have got married and had their children. And now they're making that transition into household formators. And and their spending goes from discretionary to necessity and how, how much that changes and how that will change which workers get paid what. If you're providing those necessities, your pay is going up. And if you're providing the discretionary items, you're not. Yeah, because the other context I thought about this, uh, Father Circo, was, um, you know, think about inflation, right? I mean, let's just... Let's just think of, you know, the last two years of our lives. And let's just say that this parable was a two-year tale, okay? If you want to productively get done as a business what you'd like to get done, would it bother you that you're paying your laborer more right now than you were two years ago to get the same level of output, a.k.a. the harvest? And it, so I look, I look at, you know, you, you run it, you think of like your old uncle, your old, your grandpa or something like that being like, well, I remember what we used to pay people and this is ridiculous. And it's like, but again, we need the harvest done today. That's right. It's a different circumstance, and there are a whole different set of subjective values that are going to be brought to bear in the market economy. Yeah, you, uh, and by the way, uh, oh, to, to go, go back to the question of um, having children, because it ties in the scarcity and, and all the rest of it, um, and you're, you're people who are investigating the market all the time, it seems to me that China in the next roughly 10 years is going to come head-on uh, with the reality of the one-child policy that existed in China precisely because of the scarcity mm. of uh, female children sure. or, or people in general because they've, you know, aborted their, their, their female children in preference for the male and the one-child policy that uh, has created a demographic um, winter in yeah. China. I mentioned to my wife when she visited there with me, I said, every single person you're going to run into under 30 is an only child. Yeah. It, it's it's horrifying to think that. I mean, I, I sat with a number of communists when I was in the hinterlands in China, up the Yangtze, 
uh, they gave us two uh, Communist Party officials to accompany us. It was very nice of them. Uh, I I, I sat at dinner with them and um, just asked him about his family and everything. And I said, oh, my daughter's in university, blah, blah, blah. I said, and what about your other children? And he said, well, you know, we don't have other children. I said, really? I said, how sad. Wouldn't it have been nice for you to tell me about three or four other kids with the joy that you just spoke about the one child? Mm. And I got kicked under the table by my American colleague who was with me, <laughs> who said you're gonna you're gonna get us put in jail here. Yeah, that's funny. All right, so let's let's pivot. the The last parable we'll talk about is the rich fool from Luke twelve thirteen to twenty one. Um, I by the way I enjoyed watching Bill sweat uh, while he worked on the last parable. Um, and one of the companies, oh Lord, said, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I pull down my barns and build greater. There will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much good laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be, which thou has provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So first, there's kind of two parts to this, and you do a really good job of this in your your chapter, and I love this. Explain to our audience the family dispute that begats the parable here. Yes, I mean, uh, why why are you coming to Jesus to settle your dispute? I'm I'm sure that the um, presumption on the uh, younger brother's part was that somehow Jesus was going to take his side in this legal dispute, but uh, Jesus deflects this. Uh, This is not going to be. Now, um, the young man should not have expected an even distribution because the older brother always got more because he had more responsibility, had to, you know, provide for uh, the family uh, once the, you know, so under Jewish law, the first son inherits more than the younger. And Jesus just doesn't want to get into this uh, Mm. problem. I think all of us know, or at least know people where families have disintegrated Mm. uh, over money, bonds of love, and memory, which you can't ever substitute for, disintegrate over over dis, dis, dispute like this one. And in the parable of the prodigal son is another one, by the way, where you'd, you'd have this kind of thing. So Jesus just deflects this and is trying to point them to the higher set of values mm. that, that they seem to be losing sight of here. So uh, we work, a lot of the investors we work with are financial advisors and family offices that work with uh, situations like these, have seen issues, to your point, like this. But I, I think you 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 bring it kind of from a 30,000-foot level, and I, you get into just an excellent way of looking at this parable. You talk about Karl Marx and how he understood, in effect, this family conflict, the family of, you know, God, right? God's creation is people. And create a lot of divided divide, just like the family inheritance does for this family here. I mean, first off, don't all humans feel like the victim when they are often not? 
And, and, and at the same time, we're not arbitrating over, gosh, there's new wealth created. Where should it be apportioned to? No one's creating new wealth in this story. No, it's the, it's the existing estate that's uh, being distributed. So it is, it is the kind of socialist model in, in that sense. I, I think that um, Marx and Engels really saw the importance of private property to the family. Mm. And they thought if they could attack both of these, then uh, they could overthrow the capitalist order. Uh, I think they were right. If they could, they would. <laughs> uh, you have a great Churchill quote in this chapter, too, that I have to read. Um, it's, it, it, it's such a good one. So I'm gonna, I'll quote it, and, and I'd love you to speak to it. Uh, uh, quote, Winston Churchill observed that the socialism of the Christian era was based on the idea that all mine is yours. But the socialism of today is based on the idea that all yours is mine, end quote. Uh, I, I thought of it, you know, I, I have four kids, so I think of it as like a child, rather than me getting to bless them, they come and make demands of me. <laughs> uh, you know, how, how do you look at this it, culturally today? Well, uh, as I said earlier, you know, the, the stereotype of Jesus is of this kind of uh, uh, socialist and that the early church, in fact, this is what um, Engels, Marx's friend there, was saying about the early church, primitive Christianity was primitive socialism. And he bases that on the Acts of the Apostles where they held all things common, much like a family. Sure. Family holds all things common. Um, but what we miss in that sentiment, it's, it's what Churchill really underscores here, is that what prompts that sentiment of sharing wasn't some regulatory or coercive apparatus, but was an inspiration from the heart because you love members of your family or in the early Christian church. They loved each other, and this was a difficult uh, moment for the church and its persecution. So what prompts the sharing, what prompts the quote-unquote socialism is not the government, but the message of Christ. Mm. The real question we need to ask ourselves is... Um, on the moral level, is somebody morally improved by the fact that they've had their money taken away from them, even if that money goes to somebody who's in need? If they are not involved personally in giving of the charity, mm -hmm. uh, and is the person who gets that money that's confiscated from somebody else morally improved by it? And are you the, the great distributor, morally righteous because you've done this? I... I, I I failed to see that. Well, and, and you get into, um, and this is kind of like, I love the paradigm of like, you know, back to Luke 252, as Bill mentioned uh, during our visit today, um, you know, growing in stature and in wisdom and favor with both God and man. You talk in length about what we deal with in an uncertain future, right? We all have to deal with the uncertain future. And then our fate, is, as you point out, is in God's hands. Charlie Munger talks about the idea, uh, the ideal of delayed gratification with young people a lot. He, you know, delayed gratification, the benefits to it, how most people can't actually do it, to your point, um, about the differences in us. Um, isn't this parable speaking to the spiritual and practical truth of delayed gratification? Because obviously the man with, you know, everything couldn't do that. Yeah, uh, I think that the, the delaying of gratification is one of the most important virtues uh, that we can have because, you, you know, if you think about it, it really runs through a lot of our decision-making, our moral decision-making. Mm -hmm. And 
it is the ability to delay gratification is the key human characteristic, isn't it? Because we're the ones who not only reflect on ourselves, but who can reflect on ourselves reflecting on ourselves. Mm. And it's that capacity that gives us the ability to build for the future. Animals are bound to things by their instincts. You could say that a beaver builds a dam, but a beaver doesn't build a series of dams and then rent them out to other beavers. That's what human (laughs) beings do. Uh, And and it's exactly the superficiality that this rich fool gets himself into. It's probably, by the way, this parable is probably the origin of the phrase that you can't take it with you. Sure. Um, But St. Ambrose said about this, but there is something you can take with you. It's what Jesus says here as uh, being rich toward God. What do we take with us? We take virtues with us. Our our discussion earlier about children, um, you, you you can leave a legacy, but you can't monetize a legacy. Well, and you can store up treasures in heaven. I, I, I always, people ask me, I, I teach them what a Ginny Mae bond is, where, where mortgages pay in there and then it gets passed through. And that, uh, to me, that, that, that's what this Christian life is all about, is passing your blessings through to other people, being, being, being a pass-through security, a, a pass-through human being. Yeah. And the whole virtue of that is that you are surrendering it, not that somebody is confiscating it from you. Right. Sure. Um, well, on, on, a, on uh, an election day like, like today, that, that, uh, <laughs> you're getting me excited. So, Father Sirico, um, just to, I, I want to make sure our listeners um, know that we, we didn't talk about the house built on a rock, which is a great parable. We did not talk about the Good Samaritan, which I would just comment that your discussion on the Good Samaritan yeah. and what kind of um, the characteristics of the blessing he bestowed upon uh, you know, the, the person on the road is just, you do such a descriptive job in that parable. Um, and then also, like you mentioned earlier, the prodigal son, um, it, you know, is there anything else from this book or the parables that we didn't talk about that, that you'd like to mention to our listeners? Well, the last, what would it be? Maybe the third, the last third of the book goes beyond the parables. Mm. It goes into other economic matters within the new Testament. And, um, Oh, I deal there with questions like, uh, what about the rich man and the eye of the needle? That that passage and the, the whole circumstance that gives rise to that where uh, this rich man comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to be perfect? What can I do mm-hmm. to inherit the kingdom of God? And people hear that passage and they immediately think, well, well Jesus' answer was give away everything that you have. Sure. Impoverish yourself. But interestingly enough, if you just pause for a moment and read it slowly, that's not what Jesus says. The first thing Jesus says to him is, go sell what you have and give to the poor. Mm. Now, that's a very important thing. If he's selling, he's engaging in commerce. Jesus is admonishing the man to go into the market and get a price for your possessions. Get Mm. a subjective price. What can you get? And that is you know, income is going to enable you to be a servant mm-hmm. to the poor wow. and then come and be my disciple. It would have been interesting. We would have had 12 apostles, 13 apostles then. Yeah. Uh, but that's that the end of that story is where Jesus uses that probably the most memorable metaphor in the New Testament, that how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for 
a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is taken uh, by so many people to mean that uh, he's denouncing wealth as such. But that's not what Jesus says, because the disciples say, well, then who can get into heaven? And everybody forgets what Jesus' answer is to that. It's with man, it is impossible. With God, mm. all things are possible. So it's not mm. at all a condemnation of wealth as such. It is the the disorientation, it's the, the disordering of one's values to the superficial, to the material, to the things that don't last, and the negligence of uh, keeping one's eye on the kingdom of heaven. I'd just like to mention the Good Samaritan. My favorite part was the way you explained that he, he went to the innkeeper and it, it, he said, look, if you have to keep him three or four more weeks, you just charge that to my account and I'll pay you the next time I come by. I, I love that. Yeah, he, he puts himself in hock for this guy. It's the, the whole core of that is that this was personal. And people want to take the Good Samaritan and make it into the, um, the justification of a welfare state. Sure. It's the antithesis of that. It's the antithesis of bureaucratization or politicization. It's personal. It's engagement. It's sacrificing ourselves for other people. Well, we really appreciate your time today. This has just been a really fun discussion for us. Um, you know, we talk like as I we talked about earlier. We we talk a lot about worldly wisdom as Charlie Munger speaks about it. Um, we've done that with some of the other authors in this podcast. Um, for our listeners, Father Sirico's book. The Economics of the Parable explains the the addition that biblical wisdom uh, that Jesus' uh, parables provide humanity, we would argue. It's a great book to cause your physical and spiritual life to be aligned on these virtues and truths. Um, I thank you again, Father Circle. For our audience, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us. For a Book with Legs podcast, we look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book with Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.